Hello. Morning. 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 We are uh, going to look at a passage of scripture. It's one of my favorite in Isaiah. Uh, right now, and then again, uh, another one in uh, worship service. Right now, I'd like for you to all turn to the 11th chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah 11. Not spill that, honey. Okay, are you ready? Turkey lip, you ready? Okay. <laughs> Isaiah lived in a time when uh, they were having problems with the economy, like we are. The rich people kept getting richer and the poor kept getting poorer. The middle class kept shrinking. Uh, the rich people were taking away homes and land that had belonged in family, uh, family structures since um, Joshua. When Joshua brought the people into the land, God gave every, everybody in Israel a permanent possession. But at this point, the wealthy people, the bankers, are taking land away from people who can't make their payments. They're stealing land from widows and orphans. And if you read the first 12 chapters of Isaiah, you'll see several places where he talks about that. So it's not that different from our time. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and the middle class are shrinking being taxed. And chapter 11 is a flash of hope. It's a bright light in the middle of all this seeming negativity. If you read the prophets, you'll see 90, probably 94 or 5% negative. Calling the people to repent for their sin. But about 5 or 6% of the prophets is very positive because it speaks of a future. And the prophets, miraculously revealed by God, were able to see into the future. And so here in the 11th chapter is something like this. A shot of bright light in the middle of gloom. He says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse... And from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will make decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Pretty powerful words there. Righteousness will be his belt. And faithfulness a sash around his waist. 
And then look at verse 6. This is one of those amazing passages that seems to be speaking about a future for all of us, what heaven is like. I don't know if you're aware, uh, you may be, that before the flood of Noah, nobody ever ate meat. No animals ate other animals. Uh, Nature was not red in tooth and claw the way it is today. Before the flood, God had such a protected environment that people could live an average of over 900 years. People today don't believe that, but it it actually happened. Uh, The only way you can get a dinosaur 150 feet long and weighing 100 tons is if that dinosaur lives a long, long time. A long, long time, okay? The only way you can grow a mastodon tooth, mastodon means they have a tooth like a mast of a ship, and it grows out 12 feet or 14 feet and curls back in on itself. The only way that could happen is if something lived a very long time. Teeth don't grow that fast. Today you find elephants that have tusks that are maybe six or seven feet long, but before the flood, they were so long that they curl back in on themselves, and the animals were also bigger. Reptiles grow as long as they live. So if you have a baby dinosaur, if you bring on the ark with Noah, by the time you get out of the ark, how long were they in the ark? Yeah, a year and a week. And they weren't about to get out of that ark after what they'd seen until God told them it was safe. Kind of like in the Wizard of Oz, you know. You can come out now. (laughs) Uh, There's so much to learn about the Scripture. And uh, before the flood, nature was peaceful. Genesis 1.29 says that people and animals could eat only green herbs. And they were bound by that command from God until after the flood, when Noah offered sacrifice of clean animals. The scripture said the Lord smelled that aroma and gave us the right to eat meat. And I think there's a significant thing there. He gave us a right to eat meat, but he also in that same section of Scripture says he's going to cut our lifespan down to 120 years. I think there might be a connection between eating meat and 120 years. Maybe. But certainly the cloud canopy was taken away. Everything was changed. The earth was different. Nobody had ever seen a rainbow before the flood because there was never any direct sunlight. All the ultraviolet rays were kept from human skin. Another reason people live so long. I've got a list of ten reasons people live so long. We know from fossilized amber. How many of you have seen Jurassic Park? You know what amber is. It's a petrified tree sap. And inside that, they found bubbles, and they leached the bubbles and tested them and found out that all of them were at least 38% oxygen. 38% 
That's double what's in here today. So that's another reason people live so long. And people, I believe, got bigger. And animals got bigger. They found three-toed sloths as big as elephants. You know this, probably. They found 70-foot asparagus spears in Greenland. Asparagus! Imagine buying it by the cord. You know? <laughs> uh, the ancient world was filled with giantism. Uh, have any of you been to Glen Rose, Texas, and seen the human footprint? Human footprints mixed in with dinosaur footprints. Really fascinating. The human footprint, the male, is size 28 shoe. That's four sizes bigger than Shaquille. And uh, the size for the woman that was there was 17. Pretty good sized lady. Um, they found bison, you know, American buffalo down there, 10 feet 4 at the shoulder. Buffalo, big as an elephant today. Uh, we know from cave drawings and things like that about uh, woolly mammoths. We've also, uh, in my lifetime, not in, well, in some of you too, but <clears throat> in my lifetime when they uh, first went into Alaska, uh, they began uh, looking through the glaciers there and they found some pretty interesting things. They found woolly mammoths or mastodons that were much bigger than elephants and in their mouths and in their gullets was tropical vegetation and these animals were frozen solid. Now, how could that happen? What would happen? Only in a cataclysm something terrible happened. I believe when the flood came when the atmosphere was removed, you know, the scripture says there was water above and water below. And I think when the water above was taken away, on the poles, all of a sudden it got cold. These guys were snap frozen with tropical food. I mean, there's so much to learn. And to think that people lived 900 years. Noah himself created as an adult. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Adam himself, I meant to say Adam. You knew I meant to say Adam. Adam himself. Anyway, Noah himself, no. Adam himself was created an adult. How old do you think he was when he was created? 21, that's adult. He get a, had a driver's license. and Yeah, 21, okay. And he lived 930 more years. So he died pretty old. Yeah, that's pretty old. And all those people, you can read in the fifth chapter of Genesis all the names. Everybody there, the youngest guy to die there was 777 years old. And the oldest was 969. Most of them lived around 900 years. Uh, one guy didn't die. He just was taken by God to heaven. Remember his name? Enoch. Enoch, Enoch means dedicated. He was an amazing person. It's the same word from which we get the word Hanukkah, you know, happy Hanukkah. Okay, so what we've got here is a stump. In Isaiah 6.13, he says the holy seed will be in the stump. And then here he says, out of the stump of Jesse, who's Jesse again? 
David's father, King David's father, out of the stump of Jesse will come a twig, a branch, it says. Notice the capital B in your Bibles. The editors are telling us that word branch is something special. I told the folks yesterday the word branch occurs uh, eight times, referring to the Messiah as the branch. Jesus uses the same image when he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. So the branch grows out of the stump and bears fruit. That's what he starts out with here. This branch is from the stump of Jesse. So this is David's father. This is the Davidic branch. All the Targums, I mentioned this yesterday, I believe, all the Targums, put that word up here. These are Aramaic commentaries written by the rabbis on the Old Testament. All of them say, this branch is King Messiah. Every rabbi. You know, usually among the rabbis you have 15 opinions. But every rabbi that wrote agrees that this is the King Messiah. So we're talking about Jesus here. He grows up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. So the roots of Jesse are there, and the branch of Jesse is there. The branch, if we're talking about David's family, all you have to do is turn to the New Testament, and you find David in the lineage of Jesus. Jesse's also in the lineage of Jesus. Verse 2. The Spirit of Yahweh will rest upon him. Two words for Lord in Scripture I talked about. First word capitalized all the way through, that's God's personal name. Probably pronounced Yahweh, though they say there are 72 different possible pronunciations. This word is the word Adonai. I'll talk about this again in the sermon today. This is the human figure of God. Psalm 110, David knew this. Psalm 110 verse 1 said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. David knew there were two of them up there. There was the Father, and there was the one next to him, his special chosen one. So King Messiah, and verse 2 is the first mention of the seven spirits of God in Scripture. If you've read the book of Revelation, if you've read Zechariah, the prophet in the Old Testament, Zechariah talks about a seven-pronged candlestick that burns forever, that stands between two olive trees that produce constant olive oil that burn, burns in that lamp. And so they're eternal images. This seven-pronged candlestick is the seven spirits of God. And you turn to Revelation chapter 1, right at the very beginning, the seven-pronged candlestick standing right there in front of the throne of God. And it's burning all the time. The Holy Spirit is a fire. Jesus is predicted by John the Baptist as being able to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire is supposed to burn the bad parts away from us. The Holy Spirit is supposed to change us from the inside out. So look at the seven spirits of God here. Can you count them? 
In verse 2, it's the first mention of them anywhere in the Bible. Now, Moses had already built the seven-pronged candlestick, but he didn't know what it signified. They thought it signified the sun, the moon, and five planets you can see with the naked eye. That's what Josephus says. But the reality is the seven-pronged candlestick signifies the Holy Spirit. Notice what he says, the Spirit of Yahweh. That's the first one. The wisdom, the understanding, the counsel, the power, the knowledge, and the fear of Yahweh. It begins and ends with Yahweh. The seven spirits of God are on Jesus. What does that give him the power to do? Well, verse 3. Verse 3 is mistranslated in the NIV. It literally says, <clears throat> He will sniff out, He will sniff out the fear of Yahweh. Jesus has the ability to uh, determine whether somebody fears the Lord or not. I mean, he talks to people and suddenly he knows what's in their heart. Talked about yesterday, the woman at the well. He says, go call your husband and come here. I don't think he's looked into her heart yet. And she said, I have no husband. And then he whoo, penetrates. Yeah, you've had five and the guy you're shacked up with now is not your husband. She said, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Of course, in Samaritan theology, that means you're the Messiah. Because they only believed in Moses, and the one who comes after him is going to be the Messiah. So Jesus has this power to just kind of smell out the fear of the Lord. He can look into every heart in this room at the same time. He can look into every heart in the world at the same time. Most incredible thing. The book of Revelation says he has seven eyes seven horns seven eyes is perfect perfect perception and seven horns are perfect power and you put those two together and John says these are the seven spirits of God that go out into all the earth you know God penetrates us he knows everything inside us Paul says in, in Ephesians 4 there is one God and Father who is over and through and in all. See, not only is he transcendent beyond what we know as reality, he's transcendent beyond time and space, but he's also penetrating into the core of the atom, holding it together by his word. Now, he's incredible. In and through and over. All. can't escape it he looks into your heart and knows everything you're thinking everything you're planning all your dreams all your hopes he knows you and he knows you better than you know you better than any of us can know you perfect perception he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes <laughs> see this is what we're stuck with we can only judge by what we see with our eyes. For some of us, that's not a good thing. Um, you know, I used to be a fairly decent-looking guy, but when you get old, I just keep going to the mirror, and I see different things going on, and 
take off my shirt and worse things going on. And <laughs> Actually, she says I look better with my shirt off than I do with it on, so, you know, whatever. She, she's blind. But anyway, uh, thick glasses. But, you know, Jesus doesn't judge by what his eyes see. When I think of the book of Samuel, little Samuel was called by God and he grew up in the, in the tabernacle and serving the Lord and he, he started hearing messages from God and God told him in the 16th chapter of 1 Samuel, God said, go out and anoint the person that I tell you. And he said, but Saul's king. And God said, I have rejected Saul. I want you to go anoint somebody else. And so he makes a trip all the way to Bethlehem and he looks through seven big, handsome brothers. Big, broad-shouldered, handsome dudes. And he keeps thinking, surely this is the one. And the Lord keeps saying, no. No, it's not the one. And finally, the Lord said, quit looking on the outside. Look at look the way I look. Look at the heart. And after he looked all seven brothers, he said, don't you have any other sons? He said, well, there's one out with the sheep. Go get him. They brought King David in. Only king of Israel ever anointed three times. He was anointed in a private ceremony right there with his family, and later in Hebron, and then in Jerusalem when he conquered the city. God looked at the heart. God described David, this is a man after my own heart. See, he doesn't have to judge by what he sees. He's the one who gave Solomon his wisdom. And then Jesus comes to earth, and he's greater than Solomon. He's the source of Solomon's wisdom. He's greater than Jacob. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than all those people of the Old Testament. Because he's God. He doesn't judge by what his eyes see. He doesn't decide by what he hears with his ears. When people ask him questions, if he knew they were a hypocrite, he said, You hypocrites! Because he knew. He saw what was in them. They were trying to trap him with their words, and they asked him question after question after question. You know, God had a face and a name and an address, and people could come right up to him and ask him questions. They took him and crucified him. Unbelievable. Amazing story. After they finished asking all the questions they could think of, and he turned them every way but loose, he asked them a question. He said, whose son is the Messiah? And they said, well, anybody knows that. He's David's son. Jesus said, oh, how did David then, speaking by the Spirit, call him Lord? And the Scripture says they couldn't answer him a word, and nobody dared to ask him any more questions. I call it the question to end all questions. Jesus is pointing something out there, folks. He's not only the son of David, he's the Lord of David. And that's what this scripture is going to teach us. Let's go on. With righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He's going to be a blessing, especially to the poor. The scripture says the poor people heard the gospel gladly. He will also judge. Look what it says. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. 
You know, the Word can be a sword, and the Word can be a rod. The Word can cut, and the Word can strike. With the breath of His lips, He will slay the wicked. God's aim at the end of the universe is to destroy all those who have rejected His Son. God has enemies, you know. And God will deal with those enemies. Jesus, when He was on earth, said, Bring my enemies who refuse to let me be king over them and slaughter them at my feet. Some anger. Deserved anger. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt of his, of his uh, weaponry and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And then look what happens as a result. This is one of the most amazing passages. I love this passage. It tells me there are dogs in heaven. And I hate to admit it, but there are even cats in heaven. <laughs> Listen to what this says. The wolf will live with the lamb. See, it's going to go back to what we lost before the flood. It's going to go back to the paradise in the garden. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. That's a, a fattened calf is what that means. And a little child will lead them. Little children will have no fear from lions and tigers and wolves. You know, I remember our kids used to have uh, nightmares. And our daughters usually were about tigers and our sons usually were about wolves. But there will be no fear in the world to come. And a cow will feed with the bear. And the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. See, people have forgotten what the world used to be like. This is what it used to be like. Everybody eating herbs. We've been sold a bill of goods, folks. Evolution is a crock. I don't know of any other word to describe it better than that. We've been taught stuff that has no basis in fact, has no evidence whatsoever. If you press them for evidence, they say, well, look at the comparison between these things. All that proves is that the person who made them made them similar. You can't prove that something came from something. Nobody's ever, ever seen evolution. You realize that in the, uh, in the scientific realm, the scientific method says it must be repeatable to be true. Kind of rules out the resurrection. You know, it must be repeatable to be true. And so every time you do the same thing in science, you get the same result. And every time they try to cause evolution, let me tell you about Gregory Mendel. Maybe you've heard of him at the University of Chicago. He got a Nobel Prize for his work in Drosophila, fruit flies. Fruit fly has an eight to twelve year life, I mean eight to twelve uh, hour lifespan. So they have to get busy. Eight to twelve hours, if you're going to have more, more uh, fruit flies, you better get busy. And so they very quickly mate, and they eat fruit, and they mate, and they eat fruit, and then they die. So this guy decided, I'm going to take these Drosophilia, and I'm going to have 
all the generations I can raise in my lifetime. I'm going to see what they change into. And they kept changing into fruit flies. And so he started bombarding them with x-rays and trying different things on them, uh, trying to heat up the place and cool down the place and putting lights at one end and darkness at the other. And these fruit flies would go different directions. And pretty soon after hundreds, I mean probably thousands of generations, he had fruit flies with stunted wings, fruit flies with big wings, fruit flies with red eyes, fruit flies with blue eyes, fruit flies with stunted feet. They didn't get a dog or a cat or anything out of that. All they got was fruit flies. And they kept going after his death, and a student took care of it for years and years and years, and it's still just fruit flies until some kid forgot it one night and left the lights off. And when they came in the morning, they were all dead. That was the end of it. That's sad. You might want to, you know, cry for those fruit flies. But, but the point is, the point is, I don't care how many generations you go through, it's still fruit flies. In the Old Testament, God said, make them according to their kind. Now, that's a broad boundary. How many kinds of dogs are there? I heard an evolutionist in a... <laughs> I was followed by a hair-lipped dog one time. Kept saying, Mark, Mark, Mark. You know, what, what? You know. Anyway, uh, I forget where I was going with that. But that's the trouble with humor. It makes you stop thinking about what you're talking about. Okay, what was I talking about? Dog! Dog! I heard an evolutionist and a non-evolutionist arguing one time. And the, evolution, the, the evolutionist said, Are you telling me that all 250 varieties of dogs came from two pairs of dogs on the ark? And the guy said, yeah, but what you're telling me is that all 250 varieties of dogs came from a rock. Now, see, it's easier for me to believe that it came from dogs than a rock, okay? And you can. You can divide up and separate all kinds of different things within a certain boundary. What happens when you mate a jack donkey with a horse? Get a mule. What happens if you make the mule with the horse or jack donkey? Most of the time you get nothing. Sometimes you get another mule. How far can you go there? Mule is it. See, you can only, there, there's boundaries. God said, according to their kind. And evolution says, no, we started out as amoebas in some pool of slime in the ancient world how many billions of years ago? And just make up all this stuff. And it's a nice story, but it's absolutely nonsense. And it makes no sense scientifically or otherwise. Uh, I don't know what you were taught in school, but I first book I ever read about dinosaurs said they died out 65 million years ago. Um, I have a video called Dinosaurs in the History of Man and Dinosaurs in the World Today. I'm going to give you a website. All you got to do is look up 
right there is proof that humans and dinosaurs lived together. They discovered a, a bunch of multifaceted stones in several places in the world. And there were pictures of humans, dinosaurs, tri triceratops, stegosaurus, you know, all the different kind of lizards drawn on, this, on these things that were dated 200 B.C. to 800 A.D. Humans were there. When they dug up Nebuchadnezzar's castle, who was Nebuchadnezzar? King of Babylon. On the wall of his castle is a picture of a dinosaur inside a cage. The bottom of the Grand Canyon in this country. There are ancient Indian pictures of dinosaurs. And, of course, mastodons and many other things. So, yeah, they're digging up bones all the time. See, in the old days, they called them dragons. And people went out and killed them. And people kept killing them off. I've got the second part of this video, by the way, is dinosaurs in the world today. The guy has two pictures of the Loch Ness Monster, which is a plesiosaur. Dinosaur with fins and a long neck and a little head. And he's got two pictures of it. His name is Kent Hovind. And uh, he's a man of principle. Yep. You can look him up at uh, drdino.com. Dr. Kent Hovind, he's not the only one. Uh, Ken Ham. And several others. Yes, sir. This website is Bible.ca. That's CA. Yes, sir. It's kind of unusual, but, but that's what it is. And it'll show you artifacts from the digs that they did in Acambaro, Mexico. Uh, scientists came in to disprove it, and when they saw these stones, they realized these things are from 200 BC all the way up to 800 AD. But they said, We think this is fake. And they said, oh, really? How old is that house over there? And somebody said, well, it's over two and a half centuries. And they said, let's dig under that house to see what they find. And they found over 200 more of them under the house. So it's not a, not a fake, not a hoax. It's reality. Pictures of dinosaurs and humans together interacting, including triceratops and several of the other strange things. So they used to call them dragons. Alexander the Great, in his journal, when he goes into India, he said, my army had to go around a nest of dragons. And we had to go two or three days out of our way to avoid them. They didn't want to fight them. Because if there are a bunch of them, it's hard to fight. Uh, you know about uh, St. George and, and the dragon. Uh, we, we think it's myth now. But when I was in Europe, I opened an old encyclopedia that was dated... Uh, back in the 1400s, and in that encyclopedia was a picture of a dinosaur, and underneath it said dragon, very, very rare creature, and several other things. Then you go to the 1700s, open another encyclopedia, it says dragon, and it says mythical creatures. 300 years, and they went from being very rare to mythical. And then some guy in 1841 dug up a dragon's bones and called it a dinosaur. And there it goes. From that point on, 
1859, Darwin comes out with his Origin of the Species, most non-scientific book I ever read. Absolutely zero, he said this might have happened, this could have been, this may have been, over and over and over through the book. Oh man. <laughs> Moving right along. Verse 7 is where we quit. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant, this a little baby, will play near the hole of the cobra. And the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. And they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. And I told the folks in the seminar this weekend the word mountain in prophecy means kingdom. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. And then verse 10. Now what was he in verse, what was he called in verse 1? The branch. Look at verse 10. In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner to the people. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glory, it says. In Hebrew text. The root of David, the root of Jesse. How could he be both the root and the branch? That's my question for you. How could he be both the root and the branch? How could he be both David's son and David's Lord? Flip over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 2. Right at the beginning here. Verse 2 says, The gospel He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding His Son, who as to His human nature, that is, according to the flesh, was a descendant of David. He came out of the Davidic line. Okay, boys? He came out of the Davidic line. And then look at the next line. After being a descendant of David, he through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be son of God by his resurrection from the dead. So he's not only son of David, he's son of God. He is the root of David. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is Psalm 45. I believe it's verse 13, but you can I said 45 and wrote 41. Uh, Psalm 45, I think it's 13, but you can read it in there. There's a verse that says these words. Instead of his ancestors, they will be his children. See, in other words, at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all those people back in the Old Testament who are Jesus' ancestors in the flesh, Jesus is actually the Lord who brought them into being in the first place. I love Michael Card's classic line in one of his songs. He says, Mystery fantastic and wild, a mother made by her own child. Jesus is the creator of Mary. Jesus is the son of Mary. Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is son of David. Jesus is the root of David. Revelation calls him the root of David over and over. And he's the branch that grows out of David. 
So according to the flesh, he descended from David. According to the spirit, he's before David. Let's pray. Hmm? See if you can find it there. It should say something like his ancestors or his fathers, his children. Father, thank you for each person in this room. I pray that your word will penetrate us and change us and turn us into people who are like you. In Jesus' name, amen. What verse is it? Did you find it? Well, it's Psalm 45. Let me find it before you all leave. And that whole thing, that Psalm 45, is about the Messianic king, the marriage of the king and Christ in the church. There it is, verse, verse 16, I'm sorry. Psalm 45, verse 16. Instead of your sons, they'll be your fathers. Instead of your fathers, they'll be your sons. Thank you.